thought we'd kick off episode 38 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Surf and Turf from the band Los Tiki Phantoms. This song appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio by permission of the band. It appears on their album, and I apologize for mispronouncing this ahead of time, Papa Soy Uno Zombie. You can find that on Amazon. This is an EP release, less than $4 digitally. You can also find Los Tiki Phantoms on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fans. So you can find them over there. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm Derek M. Cook, and I'm the guy who produces and hosts this show that focuses on the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. If you haven't been over to our Facebook page or Facebook group, I encourage you to do so, especially in the group, because right now I've got a new poll going asking listeners which features of Monster Kid Radio do you enjoy the most. The podcast, the Facebook group, the Live 365 channel, the YouTube page, or the Flickr album. Maybe you like all of them, but if you can head over there and vote in that poll, that'll help me decide where I'm going to focus my energies moving forward as I continue to produce episodes of Monster Kid Radio for everybody. Let's go ahead and let that song fade out. You'll hear it in its entirety at the end of the episode. After the meat of this edition of Monster Kid Radio, I'm really excited. We're going to talk about something that I had never seen before watching it for the show. This was brought to the table by Eric Peterson. You might know him as Eric Reanimator. He contributes to other podcasts like Outside the Cinema and The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Well, this time he's contributing to Monster Kid Radio and brought along the classic serial the Crimson Ghost. This is from 1946 by Republic, so it's one of those classic serials, and it's a lot of fun. Well, Eric's background is in music, so in part two of our discussion, which will be next time on Monster Kid Radio, we're going to talk about the link between the Crimson Ghost and punk and the misfits and that sort of thing. We're going to talk a little bit about that in this edition of Monster Kid Radio as well, but for the most part, we're going to focus on the movie or the serial itself. It's a 12-chapter story that I loved, but I don't want to give too much away here. You'll have to just listen to our conversation to hear how that turns out. Let's get the rest of the top of the show business taken care of. If you have any feedback or thoughts about anything that we've talked about on the show so far or have suggestions for things for us to talk about in the future, drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or send me a voicemail at 503-479-5MKR or maybe just see me in person because tomorrow night the Joy Cinema here in Tigard, Oregon is showing the satanic Rites of Dracula as part of their Weird Wednesday series. It's free to get in, 21 and over only, 9.30 p.m. Of course, you got to load up on popcorn and all that because that's just what you do. But the Satanic Rites of Dracula is the last time Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing appeared in a Dracula film for Hammer Films. It's one of my guilty pleasures. I love this movie more than I probably should. The scene where Peter Cushing as Van Helsing is melting down a little tiny silver cross into a little tiny silver bullet to put into a little tiny gun that he's going to fire. It's just, I love that scene. That scene encapsulates the entire movie for me. And the ending, yeah, you know, I've actually warmed up to it over the years. I used to not like it. I thought it was kind of lackluster, but I actually kind of dig it now. And I love the music. It's that funky 70s Euro horror vibe. So I'm going to be going to that at the Joy Cinema tomorrow night, October 16th. You can learn more about what the Joy does over at thejoycinema.com. 
We'll be talking about the Joy Cinema some more in future episodes of Monster Kid Radio because next Wednesday is a Monster Kid Radio crash for Christopher R. Mims, the giant spider. Again, part of the Weird Wednesday series. So if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you got to join us for that. I mean, come on. You've been hearing me talk about Mim. You've been hearing me talk about the giant spider for a long time now. I cannot wait for the Pacific Northwest theatrical premiere of the giant spider, October 23rd. The Joy Cinema is also showing a lot of classic universal horror movies for the Halloween season, head over to either their Facebook page, you can find them on Facebook pretty easily, or go to their website and check out what they've got going on. And if you do show up, tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Lastly, I announced this on Facebook the other day. We currently have 19 reviews in the iTunes store, which is awesome. We've actually gone up a couple in the past couple of days. I want to get more. And if any of you subscribe to the show through iTunes and have not given us a review yet, I'm going to encourage you to do so because as soon as we hit 50 reviews in the iTunes store, I'm going to do something special here on the podcast. It'll be a surprise and I think you're going to like it. But you've got to help us get to that point. So 50 reviews, something special on Monster Kid Radio. All right, let's go ahead and get into part one of our discussion about the Crimson Ghost with Eric Peterson right after this. Two men came to this town to change the order of genre film knowledge to come. One from the north, one from the south. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with your host, Big Willie, and the Samurai. Bringing class to the trash. Four screenwriters, two directors, and one special guest on this episode of Monster Kid Radio to talk about the serial from the 1940s, The Crimson Ghost, brought to the table by Eric Peterson. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. When I reached out to people to see what they wanted to talk about on Monster Kid Radio, you brought a serial, which is not something that you normally think of when you think classic monster movies. But after watching The Crimson Ghost, I I totally get it. Are you a fan of serials, or what is your experience with The Crimson Ghost? Okay, so my my introduction to The Crimson Ghost was actually through the 70s horror punk band The Misfits, who kind of co-opted the Crimson Ghost skull image as their logo. So... Even if you're not aware of the Crimson Ghost or the Misfits, most likely you've been to the mall and you've walked past Hot Topic and you've seen that that weird <laughs> that that weird uh, skull face on a T-shirt or a backpack or in anything. That's the Crimson Ghost. So m- that was my introduction. I was I'm a I'm a horror punk fan. My my brother and I were ran a horror punk record label for several years, and the Misfits are the most well-known horror punk. And uh, if you don't know the Misfits, you might know of Danzig, who was their original lead singer and kind of the, the guy that brought a lot of this graphic arts and whatnot to the band. So they used the image of the Crimson Ghost, and back in the 90s, all of us horror punk kids figured it out. Oh, the Crimson Ghost. So we had to go and track down this cereal, which you could get at Suncoast Video in the mall for, I don't know, 15 bucks or something. It was two VHS tapes. And a lot of us sat down and watched it, and it was just kind of this, we're, we'll talk about this crazy, fun, super villain kind of cereal from the, the late 40s. And we'll definitely talk about the movie, but you brought up music, which is how I know you. You've actually yes. been doing some music segments for years now on podcasts like Outside the Cinema and a few yeah. others, right? That's correct. Coming up on two years on uh, Outside the Cinema, do a, a weekly music segment. It started off actually doing uh, all the bands from the soundtrack for Return of the Living Dead, and then I just kept on 
doing it. And I did a lot of horror stuff and soundtracks and punk rock and uh, just stuff off the beaten path. I did a surf music series one month. Which I loved, so. Well, thank you. <laughs> and then you've also appeared on things like The Gentleman's Guide not too long yes. ago. And you've done some other shows as well. Where can people find you if they want to hear more about, well, just music? Basically, Facebook is the place where you find most of what I'm doing these days. So if you go to the Outside the Cinema Facebook page or the Outside the Cinema music Facebook page. And then uh, there's also a page called Feed My Ears. That's kind of an offshoot of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, where I post a lot of stuff over there. And I'm on the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page. You can find me there. Well, we'll definitely make sure there's links to the various Facebook pages. Usually when when I have a segment, I usually post a link to either the album I've talked about or the band or, you know, a a YouTube video so people can check out the music I've been talking about. Well, we'll definitely make sure there's links to that so people can check it out. And outside the cinema, I think most podcast listeners know that show and Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema and a few others. I mean, they're pretty much mainstays now when it comes to genre movie, regardless of the genre, genre movie podcasting. So you're definitely uh, available to listeners. After we get done talking about The Crimson Ghost, of course, they can check you out elsewhere. The Crimson Ghost, 1946, and I mean, I got to tell you, I don't have a lot of experience with serials to begin with, and and after watching this Crimson Ghost uh, serial, I am regretting it now. I absolutely loved this. I'm just going to call it a movie. I mean, it's technically okay. a serial, but I loved this movie. 1946 was when it came out, directed by Fred C. Brannon and William Whitney. Four screenwriters on the project, Albert DeMond, Basil Dickey, Jesse Duffy, and Saul Shore. The Crimson Ghost is not the hero. He's the villain of this piece. Oh, yeah. You mentioned it's a supervillain piece. In private correspondence, we refer to it as like a comic book style kind of story. This thing is just action-packed. Oh, yeah. It's well, We should probably talk a little bit about the story. I mean, it's, a, it's not too deep. I mean, it's what you think of when you think serial from the 30s and 40s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is. Uh, so, you, you know, you said you didn't have much experience with serials. They were very hit and miss. And I think it was back in the 90s, like uh, Turner Movie Classics or one of those kind of stations. They ran a bunch of them. So like King of the Rocket Men and, you know, a lot of these kind of sci-fi low-budget serials that used to run before movies in the 50s and then got rerun on television in the 60s. You know, and this is like a lot of superheroes started out in the serials. So Captain America, Batman, Superman, all originally appeared in serials. And right. from, from my reading, Crimson Ghost is actually considered to be one of the better ones that was, that was made. It was one of the ones that had the higher financial investment in it. And obviously, if we're still talking about it today, and it's actually, there's a DVD of it out there that's still paying off. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very comic booky. It's... An original story, though, like you said, things like Captain yeah. America, Captain Marvel, things like that. I mean, they started in the comics and went to the serials before they became feature films. The Crimson Ghost was eventually re-edited for a theatrical release as well as a television release. Oh, yeah. uh, it's been released on DVD. It's been colorized. So it's still out there, and obviously it's had an impact on other parts of fandom since we talked about oh, yeah. music, which we'll get to here in a bit. The Crimson Ghost is a contemporary story. It takes place at modern-day 1940s. Our villain is trying to get his hands on a device referred to as the cyclotrode, which basically disables the electronics of a device that it's pointed at. It's basically an EMP gun, an electromagnetic pulse gun. Exactly, yeah. And it's it's very short range mm-hmm. to begin with. Eventually, we're trying to get it up to be a, a longer range weapon. And the Crimson Ghost wants it for himself. And there's a professor at the college, Duncan. <laughs> who <laughs> Duncan Richards played by Charles Quigley, who is 
our hero. Yep. He's the college professor who hangs out with, and you don't really ever hear what anybody else is a professor in, but he's a top physicist who's into basically CSI. Yeah. Using sciences to catch criminals. He wears the suit and the fedora and he carries a revolver and <laughs> he fights like maybe a Marine in World War II or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. or... Or in the circus, maybe? I don't know. It's 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 amazing. <laughs> you know, it's 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 back when college professors were were not just, you know, academics, they were, you know, former soldiers and whatnot. At one point the Crimson Ghost refers to him as the criminologist. So yes. <laughs> he does have this kind of rough and tumble, ready to go man of action. I'm a professor, but I'm gonna leap halfway across the office to tackle somebody who yep. might be looking square, you know, cross-eyed at the cyclotrode across the room. I love this guy. I mean, he's such a, a cheesy, smiling hero. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody's packing revolvers in this thing. Oh, yeah. You mentioned the revolver. Everybody's got a gun. Uh, Diana yep. Farnsworth is our female lead, played by Linda Sterling. She's firing weapons. Uh, yeah, and, and I, <laughs> you know, she's kind of amazing, too, because you think this is 1946. She is not the, the screaming damsel in distress. She is no. not the, 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 you know, getting coffee for everyone constantly. She is a full partner to, to Duncan Richards. Yeah. I mean, there's a few times when Duncan's like, well, you go get the car. Yeah. But for the most part, when you think stereotypical or classic, quote unquote, 40s genre mm-hmm. cinema, th- this is not that mold of the, you know, hold the back of your hand to your mouth and scream when something scary happens. She is a woman of action as well. And oh, yeah. at times it's quite capable. Oh yeah, and, and there's there's a couple times where she she makes her own you know of her own initiative she she saves the day or she mm-hmm. makes decisions and takes action to to save others or to I guess aid or collaborate with our hero yep. and once again it, he never has to rescue her more times than she rescues him exactly like I said she's a partner more than anything I think is very even handed very fair and I do like that we never. I mean, I suppose it could be implied or assumed. They're not necessarily overly romantically involved or attached. No, no. Which they be. is not part of the relationship, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was watching it. I was thinking that this would be ideal for people that have, like, not quite teenage daughters, but maybe that, that preteen set, and they want to introduce them to kind of classic storytelling of the serialized nature that, that doesn't treat women poorly, where they can they can say, look, she is taking the initiative to do this or do that and not being in the way and, you know, acting reasonably and intelligent. She flies a plane for crying out loud. Oh, yeah. I mean, she is as effective a hero at times as Duncan, and I loved it. And I know we just got to talking about how strong of a woman she is, but she's also attractive. So yeah. you have that going for her. <laughs> so, but it's balanced, but it's, it's not yeah. that she's – She's not the overly, you know, she's not the sex pot and she's not no. walking around in, in, you know, super revealing clothing for the, for the time at all. She's an attractive woman and she's dressed appropriately, but she never plays on the, the femininity. She she uses her, her mind and she also, like you said, she has some action sequences as well. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a great uh, moment where she runs away from one of the henchmen who is chasing her and she hides and she's very effective there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, she's, you know, she's doing escape and evade like, like any of the male characters would. It was during that scene when I realized she wasn't wearing heels, which <laughs> I just kind of assumed because it's the 40s, you know. Mm-hmm. Nope, she's wearing heels. She's wearing pants. She's wearing a shirt with killer shoulder pads. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, she's great. I loved her in this. And then but, the other guy that I really liked in this movie, which kind of caught me off guard, 
the Lone Ranger makes it. Well, the yes. guy who plays the Lone Ranger, Clayton Moore, and he's wearing the black suit. He's the villain. Yeah, so this is a serial that's named after the villain, and probably the most well-known actor in it is the villain's second, you know, right-hand man. So, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, right. This is one of Clayton Moore's very few bad guy roles. I loved him, and he played Ash, and he's an effective villain. I, I bought it, and the action scenes, especially between him oh, yeah. and, you know, Duncan, you know, Clayton Moore and Charles Quigley, are wonderful. And of yeah, course, he's packing heat as well. Everybody's got a gun. <laughs> well, and they've obviously been been stuntmen of some kind because it's it's all flying leaps, and this is pre martial arts fighting. So there's some boxing and some wrestling, and it's it's a lot of fun, really. It, it, it's kinetic, and it's almost like a ballet in some parts. I can see that very dance like, very structured in spots. I was joking with uh, Scott Morris, who's been on the show before mm-hmm. when I was watching this, that. I'm loving this Crimson Ghost. I love that each episode or installment is about 13, 15 minutes long. And typically the last five minutes is a huge fight scene in an office somewhere. (laughs) So it's very structured and plotted and planned and choreographed. And the fight scenes, wow. These are not just throw one punch, cut, go to another angle, throw Mm -hmm. another punch. These are wrestling matches. There's one or two shots or or camera setups. And they just go. Oh, yeah. There's no yeah. stopping. It's wonderful. The only time they cut away is when they have to substitute a dummy that they're going to throw off a cliff <laughs> or dump into the electrical equipment or something. Yes. You know, you get the dummy and you know you're in the right film. I mean, that's that's exactly where the dummy should be. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, the serials must have been a stuntman's dream. Oh, yeah. Because you've got the car chases. You've got the firing guns at each other from the cars. You've got the fight scenes. You've got falling off cliffs. You've got flying planes. You've got parachuting. You've got all – I'm betting the parachute scene was probably stock footage. But probably. still – it's got to be a stuntman's dream. These films, I, I've got to see more of them. Oh, good, good. I mean, there, there's, luckily, there, there's a bunch of them out there. So Now, my first experience with The Crimson Ghost was before you brought it up. I actually read about it in the cover story of Monster Bash magazine, uh, number 14, back in March of 2012. Okay. They did an article on creepy cliffhangers, and The Crimson Ghost appears on the cover of that issue in color. But at the time, I read it, and it just didn't really hit with me because I just didn't get it. Yeah. Now that I've watched the movie or the serial, I totally get it. The story, like we said, the Crimson Ghost is going after the cyclotrode, this miniature directional EMP device. Mm-hmm. He does get his hands on it. So a big part of the story is Duncan trying to recover it or retrieve it while the Crimson Ghost is trying to get equipment or supplies to make a bigger version of one. So there's uranium, there's heavy water, there's getting the scientists involved, there's control collars. Some pretty gruesome control collars, actually. Uh, He's got these control collars that he puts on people, some of the scientists, and I don't want to say who because I don't want to spoil too much of the story. But when these control collars that are being used to enslave him and and follow the Crimson Ghost orders, when the control collars are removed, they kill the person. Yeah, and and rather than have to worry about showing it, which would probably be against the production code, they they use uh, sparks and light flashes, which are very effective in, in conveying what's happening without actually showing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of sparks and light flashes where a lot of what's happening here. Lots of little mini explosions. The pyro special effects guys must have loved working on movies like this too, because lots of things are bursting and catching on fire and models being set ablaze. Uh, But yeah, these control color, I love the control color idea. And I'm sure this isn't the first time we've seen control colors in fiction, Mm -hmm. but it's probably the earliest example that I've seen of a control collar like this that you will kill the wearer if they try to remove it in a film. I mean, well, there's a lot of uh, science kind of, for lack of a better term, like science gimmick kind of junk, like 
very Batman-esque. Yeah. Uh, or Riddler, I mean, Joker-esque kind of uh, things that are used mainly by the Crimson Ghost. They've got like a portable closed-circuit television, basically, and there's yeah. listening devices. Mm-hmm. And then there's a device that counteracts the cyclotrode that they talk about. And then there's a death ray that comes into it. And at the very beginning, in the first episode, there's actually a model plane that's used. I mean, it's just, you just watch it and you're like, somebody was really into the gimmicks. And thankfully so. I mean, oh, yeah. this, I could easily see the Crimson Ghost going on to do other stories. I would have loved to have seen like the return of the Crimson Ghost or the Crimson Ghost strikes back. This was the only time that we saw the Crimson Ghost, right? Yes, as, as far as I know. And I've, I've long thought that this is uh, ideal for a, and I'm going to use the, the word that uh, everyone's afraid of, but a remake or a reboot. And in fact, my idea would be that set it in the modern day and take basically the structure of a show like the X-Files or Warehouse 13, have some government officials going to look for these devices that were built during the Cold War and run into the history of the Crimson Ghost. And part of the, the plot that we haven't really talked about is that it's determined that one of the professors on the staff at the university is is the Crimson Ghost. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a who is it? And so it, that could very be very effectively played up as maybe a television series or a mini series or something like that. Yeah, no, I mean that is a big part of the story. There's obviously somebody on the inside who yep. is determined and ultimately revealed that it is the Crimson Ghost is working on the inside, and you've got the bugged conference rooms and you got mm-hmm. the recording devices. You've got this element of mystery, and there's almost kind of a who done it. Oh yeah, like I said, it's it's a it's kind of a who is it who done it kind of. You're trying to figure out who it is and why that they're they're involved in trying to get all this stuff. I mean, they they say that they want to blackmail the world. They say that up front, but you're still that that element of well, who would want this? And, you know, and here's <laughs> That's that, true. Yeah, the, the Crimson Ghost is a college professor. How did he find all these henchmen? <laughs> you know, was he just like hanging out at the you know the, the local the local cafe and like are you you a henchman looking for work? It's a lot yeah, of I students who need me. extra credit. There you, there you go. There you go. Bunch of yeah, a bunch of te- teaching assistants and all. You know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Between episodes, Ash is grading term papers and all. You know. So. Yeah. Well, you know, you're talking about the, the conference rooms and the the fights. One of the things I noticed is there's all the globes in the the main conference room that they use. Yeah. And it's like wow, there's a lot of globes for these professors in that room. <laughs> Well, it had to look scholarly, right? It had oh, yeah. to look academic. So let's throw some globes in there. Well, what did you think about the uh, the sets for the labs and the secret hideout? Oh, I loved it. I love the production design of this thing. There's some great work, you know, busy work happening like in the background. Oh, yeah. R- rotating and revolving equipment and doors yep. and flashing lights and machinery moving and whirring and buzzing. And it looked dangerous. It did. And in fact, there's a scene where they have a like a chain with a sign that says keep out in front of this thing. Yeah. And all, all I can think is Osho would never go for that today. Yeah. You'd have to have a gate, and the, you know, the whole nine yards. Uh-huh. <laughs> Now, I love the production design in this. I think the way – I mean it's obviously low budget. It's a yeah. serial. So no, it's not the level of Frankenstein's lab or anything like mm-hmm. that. But I totally bought it as a lower rent mad scientist kind of setup when you get to some of the Crimson Ghost area and mm-hmm. you know his little hideout and that sort of thing. And lots of use of shadow to kind of oh, hide yeah. things that they probably couldn't fill in with actual props. But to the benefit of the viewer because it – adds another level of interest and intrigue. Oh, yeah. The filmmaking, the quality of the filmmaking oh. as, far as, as far as the use of the lighting, the use of moving the camera, the use of composing shots. And actually, I am a big fan of the screen wipes between scenes. Oh, yeah. Which, 
if that looks familiar to anyone, that's because Kurosawa used them, and then George Lucas uh, stole them for Star Wars. Right. I mean, that's where that comes from, is the serial style kind of... It's great. I mean, I love the soft wipe between scenes. I want to see more of those. I wish wish somebody would would go back to using that uh, more effectively, like on television or... We don't get a lot of B movies, B level movies out of the studios anymore. But it'd be nice if they had somebody making an adventure film that would go back to using those wipes. Would that work with like a modern story, or would you have to go completely retro? You think? I don't know. I think it'd be a matter of of the the style and the tone of the piece. I think that, I mean, even a Sci Fi Channel series could probably use it effectively if it was in the in the spirit of of the storytelling and the type of mood that you were setting. I, I suppose I could see it on Sci Fi. I'm saying something at that level, maybe like a USA series or yeah. something like that. Or if, like I said, if the uh, the studios were still into making like small adventure films that lower budget adventure films that they expected to you know make a small profit on or something. I do like the idea because I love yeah. the wipes. I love the soft wipes. So I could I could see some some sitcom using them as a gag. You know, something like The Big Bang Theory or yeah, one of those more nerdy kind of smart ones using it as a kind of a, a reference point or a callback for, for people in the know. Uh, yeah, that's what I wonder is if, if you could get away with using it without it not needing to be a referential kind of thing. Yeah. But well, even if you did, it would still work because I, I loved the way it was used in this. You can definitely tell there's a scene change and it's – Well, it, it so moves good. the story along because they're, yeah. they're trying to tell this, this story in a short period of time. And, you know, you got to get your action scenes in there. By using this wipe that it, it tells you there's a transition but it – because it's actually moving, it gives the story a uh, tempo. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. That it definitely, because there's a movement, you know, the story is moving. Mm-hmm. There you go. Something else that I liked about the movie, and I got to bring up the music because that's my thing. Okay. A lot of the music in this was music that's been used in other cliffhangers. So, uh, I say cliffhangers because that's the name of the soundtrack album I found it on. Mm-hmm. A lot of this music is stock serial music by people like Mort Glickman. I don't know if anything was originally created for The Crimson Ghost because I heard a lot of this before on an album called Cliffhangers, music from the classic Republic serials, which mm-hmm. even though I said I don't have a lot of experience with serials, I've actually owned that album for years okay. and have listened to it repeatedly. And it's a compilation album. It's got music from things like King of the Royal Mounted, The Fighting Devil Dogs, something that I've always wanted to watch, just never got around to it, called The Mysterious Dr. Satan. Oh, that's a great title. <laughs> it is a great title. I want to check it out. Some Zaro films and things like that. It's some fun music. I think I've got some of it in the Live 365 channel as well. When that music kicks in, it is so serial. Yeah. I can't imagine this music working in any other format other than this. It's so just serial. And Mort Glickman, I don't know a heck of a lot about, but I wish I did. Because <laughs> yeah. it's good music. I like it. it. It's also a device that kind of propels the action and gives you a tempo and kind of builds up the tension. Yeah. And, and it's very effective at that. Yeah, and well, as soon as it kicks in, you know. Oh, yeah. This is when it's going to happen. He did some music for Zombies of the Stratosphere. Oh, look at that. Yep. Huh. Zombies of the Stratosphere, Radar Men from the Moon, and King of the Rocket Men, I believe, were the, the three serials that were all tied together by uh, the use of the jetpack in that one, basically. Okay. So if, if you're looking for uh, another serial to check out, those three are, are definitely worth taking a look at. I'm furiously writing those down to track down. I think I've got Zombies of the Stratosphere, and I just never got around to watching it. Good stuff. So can we talk about the Crimson Ghost? Let's, sure. Let me talk a little bit about the character itself, the mask that this guy is wearing. Yeah. There's a reason why the Misfits use it. It's an iconic image. I love the look 
of the Crimson Ghost. And it's basically a skull mask with a couple of missing teeth here and there. Yeah. And, and it's framed by the hood, so that gives it kind of a, a different uh, look. And he's wearing a cape, but not like a superhero cape, more like a like a rain cape, like what, Sherlock Holmes kind of a cape, but it's all black. Yeah, yeah. Does and even sense? It does. It does totally. And it's, well, it's black in the black and white. In the yes. colorized version, I think they make it a deep red. Yeah, and that, he's then also, also he's got the eye makeup going. Yeah, he's got everything around his eyes are blacked out except for his eyes. Yeah. So he's just got these two human eyes kind of sitting in the recesses of the skull's eyes. And then he's wearing gloves as well that are skeleton gloves. Yep, which was another thing the Misfits picked up on. And uh, you'll, you will see horror punk kids wear those gloves like crazy when they can find them. Well, and I see them or, or similar versions of these in the Halloween section of Target this time of year. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, not nearly to the uh, same quality, I'm sure. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. But yeah, strangely, that mask and those gloves really, you know, especially the Misfits, they latched onto that and it was an easily identifiable and fairly, um, the gloves at least, fairly available thing for people to pick up at the Halloween store. And the legend is the Misfits used to have a silk screen of the Crimson Ghost that at their shows in the late 70s and 80s, you could just take your leather jacket or your jean jacket up there and they would silk screen it right on it. Right oh. on your jacket at the end of the show for you. How cool is that? And now, you know, like those T-shirts are everywhere. Yeah. Just go to Hot Topic and it's a good 40% of their stock is Misfits Crimson Ghost related. Well, you got to leave room for all the Tim Burton stuff, so I understand. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, a little bit of the Ramones and a little bit of, you know, the, the rest of it. But yeah. <laughs> the Crimson Ghost himself is actually played by a couple of different people in the movie or in the, in the serial. You've got the one guy doing the voice. You've got one guy doing the body work. And then the ultimate reveal at the end, which... I don't want to spoil it. I was actually a little let down by the reveal at the end. Yeah. I wish it, it was a little bigger and grander. It wraps up a little bit too quickly and too neatly. And, you know, there's there's a level of sophistication that we expect today that, that w- is missing from that wrap-up. But, you know, if you've got 12 chapters, and you've got this kind of cat-and-mouse game between uh, Duncan Richards and the Crimson Ghost. Right. And, and some people would say that Stephen King doesn't know how to wrap up the story. I would say that this one maybe is maybe not. <laughs> Not to, to that level, but it, it could have used a little more fine-tuning. Yeah, it just kind of ends. Yeah, it, uh, yep. And you see, we figured it out, and this guy's a Crimson Ghost. End scene. Exactly. <laughs> Take him away. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, is that how other serials just kind of wrap up? You know, it's been so long since I've seen some of them. I think a lot of them do, because, you know, the whole point of these was it was 15 minutes of something they could show before the, the main feature on a Saturday afternoon. And try to get people to come back every week to see, well, obviously, who is the Crimson Ghost? Who is the Crimson Ghost? That that was the hook. Yeah. One thing that I was surprised by regarding the Crimson Ghost, the character, he didn't sound villainous to me. Oh, no. Maybe I'm just making some assumptions here, but maybe I expected an accent or something darker. I don't know. He just sounded like a guy who put on a mask. And that's not to take away the impact of the character, because I love the character. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was expecting I mean, something different. I'm not sure. You know, that early on he does say that uh, you know there's a device in his mask that's distorting his voice. That's true. So you get a little bit of that. And yeah, they, they kind of play around with uh, several of the actors doing some of the voice work to kind of keep you on your toes so they don't give away who it is right away. Right. Uh, the Internet Movie Database says that ultimately four different people were responsible for the Crimson Ghost. One person wearing the robe, somebody doing the voice for when he's wearing the robe, somebody else doing the voice when he's on the radio, and mm-hmm. then at the very end, the ultimate reveal of who the Crimson Ghost is. So yeah. was that, I don't know if you know, but do you think that might have been 
a reaction to the public trying to figure out who it is? I, I think it was trying to keep the mystery, and I think that it's a uh, it's you know it's it's a cheap way to to be a little more mysterious and effective. You've already got all these actors. You got stuntmen. You've got different actors. Why not use them for more than just a couple of scenes here and there? Sure. So maybe it could have been a cost-saving measure too. <laughs> it could so, have been. so it didn't show up today. So you put on the robes. <laughs> yeah. Also, could be a scheduling thing. Somebody scheduled to be on this other set doing something else. Well, we'll just put the stuntman X in the the robe and have him walk around. Sure. Well, they were just cranking these things out too. Oh, yeah. I mean, Republic is the studio behind this. My understanding is that they just were a machine pumping these things out and you had to put out 12, 13 episodes or installments. Yeah. And I'm guessing they probably shot them all at once, you know, one big stretch and then broke them up later. Oh, I'm sure. It was like filmmaking. Now you, you have a shooting schedule and people show up and you do these, these many shots and setups and you move on to the next one. And you don't necessarily do them all in order. You right. do all the stuff in, in this set at once and all the stuff at that set at once. Sure. So. And then you break it up. as Because you don't do that with television now. You kind of do episode by episode for a exactly. lot. So interesting hybrid between TV and film. I, I kind of like it. From what I'm reading, a lot of these were actually uh, re-edited and shown as part of a television series in right. the, the 50s and into the 60s. Republic Serial Theater or something. And they'd compress them into six or eight episodes. Well, they could do this with that this particular series in particular because one of the episodes is kind of a recap. There's one yeah. episode about – I think it's installment eight or so it where it's kind of a refresher course. Yeah, There's a little bit is, of new content, but – Yeah, it's, it's this is what happened. It's basically a clip show. Which I suppose you get now. At least I don't watch a lot of modern television anymore. Mm-hmm. But when I was watching modern television, you see that every once in a while. The kind of clip show to kind of revisit and remind people. I suppose nowadays it's more of a – Last time on, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then, you know, to make sure the audience is up to speed. Well, because these were shown, was it a weekly thing or did they? I think they, they, were, they were usually weekly. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there was probably some fluctuation, but they were intended to be weekly. Mm-hmm. And also the, the, the whole point of the clip show was oftentimes that by having a clip show, they could save an, enough of the budget to <laughs> for, for that episode to put it into yeah. a bigger episode down the line. And I know a lot of shows do what they call bottle episodes now. Uh-huh. Where they'll do uh, an episode set in one set or two sets so that they can save that budget for their finale or whatever. That makes sense. You think about it, it. You're eight installments in. That's two months worth of serials. And you're getting ready to wrap it up. You kind of want to remind your audience of, of what's been going on. Sure. Yeah, maybe kind of remind people what the stakes are, what we're fighting for, what we're really up, up against. Yep. So. Which maybe as an audience member back then, I don't know. You, you mentioned we're at a different sophistication level now when it comes to consuming these these kinds of movies mm-hmm. and media. Maybe back then that's what was needed because these things do move at such a fast clip and there's so much happening. The camera work is so sophisticated for that time frame. The stuff happening in the foreground, background, the soft wipes moving things along, the yep. music keeping us going, the fight scenes every five minutes. I mean, it, it's an incredible ride. I... I'm so grateful that you wanted to talk about this because it gave me a chance to watch something that I – one of my favorite discoveries of 2013 for me. Well, well thank you. It, it, you know, I haven't watched this for several years and you know, I sat down and I, and, I, and I watched it in a couple different chunks. That's the other thing that's really nice. There, Like you said, I think the first episode is 20 minutes or so and the rest are right. under 14. This is the kind of thing that you can watch on your iPad at – you know, on your lunch break at work mm-hmm. or you know, when you're uh, – you got 20 minutes before you got to head out the door for whatever. You can sit down and put this on and watch a, you know, watch one of the, the episodes. Yeah. This almost fills up the entire bus ride to work for me. One episode did. So I had a really fun <laughs> ride into work <laughs> and ride home from work this past week. So 
I said it during the discussion. I'm going to say it again. The Crimson Ghost is one of my favorite film finds of 2013. Never saw it before. I know I'm going to watch it again, probably before the end of the year, because it's just so much fun. And I'm going to dig out that old issue of Monster Bash magazine and reread that article now that I know what the hell it's talking about. Such a fun serial, and it's a fun discussion that I've got going on with Eric Peterson. We'll come back in part two to talk about his connection to punk music, how the Crimson Ghost influenced bands like the Misfits, and how that all kind of works together. It's something that I never thought I'd talk about on Monster Kid Radio, but this was a really fun chat, and I really enjoyed having Eric on the show. Remember, we've got that Monster Kid Radio crash next week at the Joy Cinema for the Giant Spider, and kind of an impromptu thing. We're going to the Satanic Rites of Dracula at the Joy Cinema tomorrow night. Maybe I'll see you there. I probably will be wearing a Hawaiian shirt, so it's kind of hard to miss me. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution at non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Surf and Turf, which appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio by permission of the band Los Tiki Phantoms. You can find it on their album Papasoy Uno Zombie. Talk to you next time.